This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, my living room, outside of Washington, D.C., where I have been now for four and a half weeks. Plenty more to come. I hope all of you are doing well out there, also experiencing self-quarantine during this crazy and unprecedented time. Our hearts are with all of you, and I know the Force is as well. We have a special interview episode today with Michael Steele, Republican strategist and consultant at Hamilton Place Strategies. He is quite the bantha. You've seen him on MSNBC. You've seen him on CNN. You've also seen him probably behind the scenes working on behalf of John Boehner, Jeb Bush, and Paul Ryan. He's a power player, y'all, and a huge Star Wars fan. We have a great conversation about his fandom his love of Star Wars, and also democracy, and what Star Wars does and does not say in defense of democratic systems. And I think this is a conversation really worth staying around for and soaking in. So with that, here's Michael Steele. Michael Steele is a partner at Hamilton Place Strategies, where he advises clients on communications and public policy, as well as being an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. Before this, Michael was a senior policy and communications advisor for Jeb Bush's presidential campaign, and he served as press secretary for 2012 vice presidential candidate Paul Ryan. He was also notably the press secretary for Speaker of the House John Boehner. If you can't tell, Mr. Steele has been all around Washington working on the Hill in policy and nearly two decades prior as a journalist. And today I am joined by Mr. Steele, but not to speak of his achievements in D.C., of which there are many, because Michael Steele is a Star Wars fan. I first made note of this in 2018 when we were in the fever pitch of the Michael Cohen, Michael Flynn, and Paul Manafort scandals that were engulfing the Trump administration. And Mr. Steele said on MSNBC's Cassie DC, you don't recruit for your presidential campaign at the Moss Eisley Cantina. <laughs> and that is when, Michael, you got added to my little running list of dorks making a living <laughs> in politics and media. It's a real pleasure to have you on Beltway Panthers today. Well, it's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. And, and thank you for having me on to discuss something that is far more interesting and, and important than American politics. Well, I, I tend to see that that is the case with a lot of politicos is that they just need and, and appreciate a break um, from talking about the same old things. And we all have different sides to us, right? And so that's what this is all about. Now, I, I noticed that your joke landed pretty darn nicely on that panel a couple of years ago on Cassie DC uh, at MSNBC. Is that the kind of punditry that you've always dreamed of doing? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I you know, like the combination of the pop culture. I, I think it's been running too long, but the sort of old school Maureen Dowd, P.J. Or Connor Thompson sort of breaking the breaking the fourth wall and, and inviting people into the political process, using pop cultural references, using people using things that people relate to to make a point about politics or, or what we're doing as a society. 
with uh, with Cassie DC and kind of like you know breaking off those conversations with people on the on these shows. Do do remarks like that in you know on air experiences or sort of in the halls of Congress have that those ever led to like really memorable chats off camera or or in some of your other jobs that you've had? Yeah, I mean, look, Casey is a Casey's a huge Star uh, Star Wars fan. She and I, and we both recently had our first child, so. Uh, we've been trading pictures of of our kids in uh, in Star Wars outfits and themes and things like that, and <laughs> which, is, which has been a lot of fun. And you can also look; you can uh, take this. I like the fact that popular culture allows you to make points and have impact that you wouldn't otherwise be able to make or otherwise be more difficult. Because a lot of the things that politicians talk about and care about are, you know, the 1964 in laws, a lot of argle bargle, whereas people care about you know, Star Wars movies, they care about popular culture. Now, at the same time, you can take it a little far. The, uh, at one point, I was writing an op-ed for Speaker Boehner about the looming social security crisis, and I invoked the ravenous bug bladder beast of Troll from uh, Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy, and I was politely told that that was not going to fly. Oh, no, shot down in your moment of glory. <laughs> no. it, was a perfectly good, it was a perfectly good image. It was exactly right. It just wasn't something that he... That, uh, that the former speaker was was necessarily comfortable with. I wonder. I wonder if the former speaker might have been more um, uh, just sort of familiar with a mainstream pop culture reference, like along the lines of Star Trek or Star Wars. I would say that that that's definitely sort of a niche reference to try and make. And in, in yeah, that, that one <laughs> probably wasn't too smart. He actually has very little pop cultural knowledge. He uh, he, he kind of watches. If given his druthers, he would watch Miracle, the uh, the movie about the nineteen eighty. Uh, Olympic hockey team over and over again. And that's, that's pretty much the limit of his pop culture knowledge. That sounds completely on brand. And I appreciate that visual. (laughs) Now Star Wars, Star Wars opens up, you know, doors for all sorts of, of cool and new relationships. Um, You know, people who just otherwise wouldn't normally be friends who just sort of are able to, to tap into a new, a new thing to talk about that maybe is not politics or the, or the divide or their two jobs. I mean, we've been able to get through this podcast, people from the Federalist and people from NPR politics to all sit down together and do events together just to talk about Star Wars and nothing else. And I think it's a beautiful thing. But for you, where does Star Wars fandom begin? What is your origin story? Uh, so I was born in 1977, missed the first movie, which I still give my parents help for. But I got to see Empire in the theater when I was five years old or something. It was, it was right on the edge. My sister, who's a year and a half younger, didn't get to go. She had a babysitter, and but my parents took me. And it's hard to explain to younger people. I'm going to put on my get off my lawn hat for a second. Like both how dominant star Wars was culturally in the eighties and how little content there was. Like we had, you know, the first movie was in the, at the end of the seventies, like it, it totally dominated the toys, the comic books, the, the, the mindset, you know, people had, Kids had Star Wars bedsheets and curtains and all this. And it was two movies over, what, five or six years, right? That was Totally it. amazing. Yeah. Um, and you didn't see, and this is you know another kind of time machine moment, but you didn't get to see the movies again once they left the theater. Like, ma- there, was no, there was no blockbuster then. There was no you know, VHS tapes were just starting to come around at this point. And, I mean... Star yeah, you're just at the mercy of your parents to go see that movie again, or you're not going to. Right. I mean, and if once it left the theater, it was gone. Like Star Wars left the theater, the, the first movie, episode four, left the theater in what, 79. 
And it aired as the ABC Saturday Night Movie in 1984. I know it was 1984 because I made a copy of it on my parents' Betamax machine, and you could watch the news updates. You know, they used to do those little news updates in the commercials, and they were talking about the Walter Mondale-Ronald Reagan presidential race. Mm-hmm. That is quite a time machine, Michael. That's uh, so. So early on, you you kind of, I guess, uh, very young. See Empire Strikes Back, and you're probably more of age and kind of able to to hold key memories by Return of the Jedi, like totally, totally. Um, what are some of your your seminal Star Wars memories as a young person? Because you must have been coming up in the Star Wars drought, which is yeah. after Return of the Jedi and before the Phantom Menace. Yeah, it was a it was a really I mean I I I think I saw Jedi in the theater it must at least 3 times if not 4. I mean I just remember coming home to my my grandparents' house after seeing it the first time just doing a Lando Calrissian scream in the backyard. I was so excited about seeing that movie. The uh but the the next decade or so, decade and a half, you know, you had you had novels and comic books, right? The, the the expanded universe that grew into the whole Wikipedia thing that, yep. that they eventually choose, choose your own storybooks. Those are those yeah. are my voice, yeah. You know, Grandmaster, you know, Thrawn, and the the you know there was, and it was it was Star Trek was kind of the same way at that point where you got a couple of movies, but tons of of novels and comic books, and but it was all remarkably inconsistent, right? Like the brain the. Lucasfilm didn't do a great job controlling how different writers and different uh, content creators stayed within stayed within the bounds, right? So you'd have you'd read one novel and it would be kind of had this complicated explanation of light speed technology, and then you would read another novel and it would be completely different, and the timelines were all screwed up, and it was. That's why there was so much excitement for The Phantom Menace and, honestly, a lot of disappointment after that. Yeah, I feel like Star Wars is is perpetually a not not to not to rag on it, but it is sort of a, a franchise that is constantly bogged, bogged down in disappointment because it's just not able to scratch the itch that it created back in 1977, and it's a really tough place for a franchise to be to try to constantly restore the magic of childhood and the magic of being with your loved ones and seeing those original movies and surviving off of them at like you said, like a time where it's really just about seeing it and then having your imagination run away with it. And yeah. Star Wars Star Wars today is all about what they tell you about Star Wars and what's true. But back then it kind of lived in you. It had to or it died. Yeah, or or the adventures and games you played with the action figures and the and the sets with your friends and you know, you would it would be a big deal like one friend would have the Hoth set up and one friend would have Dagobah and could you get them together and but it also, I think of it more now like kind of like the James Bond franchise. It's not that it's always disappointing. It's that there are great movies. I thought The Force Awakens was an amazing movie. I, lo- as, I agree. Uh, that was one that lived up to every expectation I had of it, and the expectations were incredibly high. And so I think of it more as like a rising and falling. And then, you know, the, I think that the, you know, the last one did... <laughs> This final trilogy is so screwy and so frustrating because the Force Away because Last Jedi was so bad, and I, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack if, this, if we discuss this on Twitter or something. But 
the fir- the two J.J. Abrams movies were pretty good. I mean, there were he has some. I have some issues with his plotting and pacing. I think that there was a little, some internal consistency, particularly around the technology and sort of the harder science stuff that Star Wars has never been good about. But like, the, the big deal about Star Killer Base was that it was an inter, it was a faster than light planet destroying laser. Right, that was the new technology. You don't have to bring the Death Star to the planet yep, you want to yep. destroy. You can shoot it across. And you know the core planets of the of the old Republic or, or the new Republic rather are suddenly five Earth-like worlds orbiting the same star. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, I mean there's there's some very specific Abrams stuff, but in general, I thought the first and third movies were excellent, and the biggest problems were kind of trying to bridge all of the terrible stuff in the middle one. So, in terms of your favorite things in Star Wars, uh, let's maybe get sort of a top three of which movies, and you can you can throw in a show if you want to be contrarian or anything like that. But like, what are your top three favorite Star Wars properties? Anything Han Solo from the classics. I mean, Harrison mm, Ford, yeah. like that was just the ideal, right? He was he was he was the ultimate cool, wry, laid back. Um, sarcastic, but he still, you know, saves the day and got the girl. Um, I thought of, I think of the new properties, Rogue One is just amazing. I love Rogue One. Um, I think that Solo, and I'm stealing this opinion from Sonny Bunch and the the weekly uh, sub beacon. Yeah, guy, yeah. The uh, Solo was was actually a really good movie. It just came out too soon after Last Jedi, right? Like it was Last Jedi was the Christmas movie. And Solo came out, I think, in May, and they didn't have a Star Wars movie for Christmas, I think, because they didn't want to go up against, I'm forgetting who they didn't want, I'm forgetting who they didn't want to go up against, but they released Solo too close after Last Jedi. I actually thought it was a pretty good movie. Yeah, it was it was the first of a of a new sort of marketing play for for Star Wars under Disney, where they were going to attempt you know the Marvelization of Star Wars and do a movie every single year, every single calendar year. Yeah, and they they tried it, they they test ran it, and and it does seem that they have backed down from it. Bob Iger, one of the last addresses that he gave regarding Star Wars was basically just pledging that they were going to pump the brakes on the amount of content that they put into the marketplace because it turns out Star Wars is not Marvel. And you can't treat it like that. Um, you know, for me, I'm used to waiting three years in between Star Wars movies, and I'm not right. just comfortable with that. I'm happy with it. it. Gives it time to marinate and sink in. And, and Solo was a good movie, but it didn't need to be made, <laughs> really. <laughs> and that's that's kind of the thing about that. And like, and I agree with the release schedule thing because that definitely plays into it. But it was a movie that I feel like. Han Solo fans like like you and I like we didn't really ask for that. Harrison Ford is still alive. He's still trucking along and doing his thing. I wasn't ready to have that role recast yet. Right, and that that I, I think two things. I think one, you're right about spreading out the releases a little more. I think that it's again to go back to James Bond. About once every two years is probably about right. Um, and then yeah, to go back to the the point I was making about the, the Harrison Ford Han Solo for those of us who grew up with him, you can't cast anybody to replace Harrison Ford in that role. I mean, it's sort of like when you watch the Blade Runner sequel and Ryan Gosling is supposed to be the inheritor of Harrison Ford in some form or fashion. There's just, there's nobody as cool available right now, uh, you know, to do it. 
Yeah, and Alden, Alden, I, I, I was impressed because I, I went in there with a chip on my shoulder about him, you know, performing Han Solo, and I was like, you know, I'm not going to like this. I didn't like him in the trailers, but then I went in there and I was like, oh, he kind of, he kind of delivered. He did the best job he could with this. But I just don't know what it is about this movie. It's hard to love it like you might a movie like Rogue One, which, you know, some original trilogy loyalists in my life like that is their their Star Wars movie now, and it yeah, is yeah. it is such a good movie to introduce new fans too because well, it just sort of lays out the the galactic conflict in such a clear way and it does the same thing that the mandalorian does in a certain way it it takes a different genre and transforms it into the the star wars universe right mandalorian is a spaghetti western in the star wars universe and rogue one is a world war ii movie in the star wars universe Absolutely, a beautiful World War II movie in the in the vein of Star Wars. Um, so I, I want to pivot over here to uh, your your Twitter account. You have a Star Wars uh, banner going on in there, and it appears to be like a Star Wars themed wedding. Perhaps tell us a little bit about was, that photo. That was actually the um, the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center performing ah. themes from all of the Star Wars uh, movies, and it attracted a lot of. Um, a lot of folks in, in Star Wars costumes. And so, they, yeah, that's a great, I love that picture. I am always joke that I'm telling Admiral Akbar that I think his, uh, his strategy for the Battle of Endor may be flawed. <laughs> well, it's a glorious picture, and you, uh, you look happy as can be uh, in, in that setting. I, I do know that fellow Beltway Bantha Kristen Saltis-Anderson, you might know her from Republican oh, yeah. Polster Circles, oh, yeah. she's, she's at almost every one of those symphony performances. Somewhere. They're amazing. They're really oh, my amazing. Gosh. And she, yeah, yeah. She's great. She's, she's spoken at my Georgetown class, and we've been buddies for a long time. Well, I, I hope at some point uh, y'all are able to crack into Star Wars because she can go deep. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful thing. Now, uh, the origin story, just, just so you know of this podcast, and I, I talk about it a lot on this show, is that it's, it's related actually to your former boss, Jeb Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, so this podcast came about after the 2015 October debate. I think it was on NBC when the Republican primary was still going on, and there was a, a lot of sniping going on between Senator Rubio and Jeb Bush, and it sort of spilled out into the debate over immigration and also attendance records between the two guys. And yeah. Rubio, Rubio hit at Jeb pretty hard, and the next day, I remember in the spin rooms and, and seeing all the talking heads referencing the apprentice has become the master. Jeb right, said right. Padawan betrayed him and all that mess. <laughs> there, there were memes about it. Like there were Mustafar, uh, Obi-Wan, Anakin, Jeb, and Rubio memes. And that was my aha moment for starting this show. I'm curious, did you hear any of the Star Wars ch- tinged uh, commentary going oh, God, on yes. after that yeah. debate? What, what was yeah, that like? Absolutely. What did you hear? Well, unfortunately, it kind of it kind of made me sick to my stomach because we had, you know, I was yeah. in the debate. I was part of the debate prep team. I had had helped think through um, how Governor Bush would engage with with Senator Rubio. I think, yeah, looking how everything turned out with uh, the president being nominated and, and and winning the election, it's amazing how wrong so many of the assumptions were that informed kind of what we did throughout the campaign in 2015 and 2016. And there was this, because everyone had this iron certainty that at some point Trump was going to flame out, there was the only thing everyone agreed on was that Trump wasn't going to be the nominee. And so you got this obsession with 
first, you know, portraying your candidate as benefiting from Trump being in the race. I mean, I spent most of August and September, I think, you know, explaining, gravely explaining to reporters how Trump being in the race was was good for Jeb because he kind of blotted out the sun and that meant Rubio and Walker couldn't raise money. And, you know, we had already done our fundraising. So it was, it was, it was really, you know, it was a good thing for Jeb. Um, but it also meant that everyone was obsessed with this sort of win your lane idea. And that's why you had Governor Bush and, and Senator Rubio who were really natural allies, both personally friends and natural allies on most yep, issues, yep. Um, kind of savaging each other. What did you sort of feel just sort of from the, the, the you know, there was this long story out there about how Jeb had sort of brought Rubio up into this world and Rubio had, had largely kind of laid hands off in that debate. And, you know, people are talking in, in the, the Twitterverse and in the news the next day about how this is like a master Padawan relationship. I mean, did you sort of feel like that was sort of the inevitable outcome? You mentioned like the lanes being crowded. Did it have to happen at some point? At some point there had to be a a clash between Rubio and Bush. And there was a view more among Governor Bush's Florida supporters than people I think who came from Washington, you know, that, that Governor Bush was, one, had given Rubio his start, had supported him um, at times when, you know, his blessing was one of the things that made the difference in, in Rubio's career. And I think in Florida political circles, you know, the Speaker of the House is not a ceremonial position, but not a very powerful one either. And Governor Bush so dominated the political scene down there that there was this sense that, you know, Rubio really should have stepped aside. He shouldn't have run if if Bush was running. Yeah. I, coming, coming at it from somebody who's in Washington, I mean, I had helped arrange when Senator Rubio gave the response to President Obama's State of the Union. I saw him as a sort of figure with his own rank and standing and supporters. And I, I never kind of bought into that the same way, but it was definitely, definitely among Florida political circles. That was, that was a very resonant meme. Now this is, is not to assume that Jeb or um, Marco Rubio are Sith and that they abide by the rule of two. And this is neither assuming that Congress is actually like house of cards, but bear with me here, just so you know. So, so part of Sith lore is related to the quest for power is it's sort of all consuming. You have the rule of two, the master possesses the power and the knowledge, and he leaves the apprentice to crave it. The end result with the rule of two in Sith culture is that the apprentice has to become hungry enough and powerful enough to eventually kill the master and take on their own apprentice to sort of continue uh, the Sith legacy. It's a really bleak worldview, but I'm curious in your experience on the Hill, is there an element of that that plays out in real life? Well, there's a, I was just going to say, I suppose it could have gone that way in the 2016 presidential contest if Chris Christie hadn't uh, had his moment of glory at the Manchester debate. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, there, I remember there, that. There is a counterfactual there where Rubio, if Rubio was trending towards being a strong second in New Hampshire, if he followed being a strong second in New Hampshire with going down to South Carolina, getting the Nikki Haley endorsement, presumably Jeb and Christine Kasich and would have dropped out. Anyway, there's, I'm not saying he would have won the nomination, but there is a plausible path. Um, on the Congress thing, I don't think it's ever quite that stark. There there used to be a theme in, in House Republican Conference where the chief deputy whip 
the only position leadership that's not elected, that's selected by the whip, almost inevitably winds up replacing the whip. Mm-hmm. Which is a sort of a you know Roy Blunt and Eric Cantor and it, it you know there, there was a series of them there. Um, so that was that's the only that's the only thing I can think of that kind yeah. of ends up with that. That that's actually a, a pretty active, apt example because you know there really is so only so much power to go around. There's only so many seats and committee assignments. There's only so many renovated offices. Um, <laughs> you know, does it, but doesn't it have to be true though that like cutthroat behavior has to take place eventually in a politician's career for them to survive? I, I guess I just I don't buy sort of the flying by the seat of your pants very optimistic view that. Deep might offer that you know a lot of people are just try, just trying to survive in this thing and they have no plan. I think that there is often a moment of um, moment of ambition, moment of of truth on, along those lines. Uh, on the other hand, you know sometimes these things th- th- there is an element. One, there's an element of like just the the VP sort of parade of accidents and misunderstandings and uh it, it it is all a little a little comic at some points uh and there's there's also people who get elevated because of their worth and virtue uh rather than because of blind ambition i mean paul ryan legitimately did not want to be speaker of the house and he understood kind of all the things he was giving up to be speaker of the house and i don't think he regrets it but it was uh, he was not playing coy and and um, secretly lusting for the for the speaker's gavel when you know they tried to convince Kevin McCarthy to do it and and tried to avoid um, Boehner's pleas to do it. What lessons have you personally derived from Star Wars throughout your life as a as a fan that have played into your career in some way or another? Things that you sort of keep, you know, locked away. They're they're in there. They're the lessons from the saga, but they they've sort of played out in in strange and interesting ways in your life. So one of the most interesting Star Wars related arguments that I, I use a lot in my work um, is the idea that when you're creating your narrative for a candidate you have to remember that the candidate isn't Luke Skywalker. The candidate is Yoda. The American people are always Luke Skywalker. And so you're not making the candidate the hero. You're making the candidate the person that helps the hero achieve their objective. I've never, I've never thought about that as a, as a possible paradigm. So the, the candidate is the holder of wisdom? Is that well, sort of like what you're, what you're kind of opining? Not necessarily the holder of wisdom, but the enabler. It's not that, like, Secretary Clinton's campaign slogan, I'm with her, is one of the most worst examples of political malpractice I've ever seen. It's not supposed to be about the candidate. She's for me. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. people who are living their lives and want to achieve their goals, whether that's educating their children or retiring comfortably or serving their community or whatever that goal is. And it's the job of the politician to the extent that they're involved in people's lives is to help them achieve their goals. What are some of your 
more interesting thought experiments that you have done in the world of Star Wars government, you know, things that you think are interesting about the Star Wars universe. We have the the Galactic Senate in which I, I suppose people are, are tapped by their different planets to go represent them in the body. It's kind of like a UN type sort of deal. You have Naboo where I suppose they, they elect child monarchs to be their leaders almost, yes. almost habitually. Yes. Um, what uh, you have in the, the empire, like what, what interests you about government in Star Wars? We're going we're gonna to leave the middle trilogy out entirely, the discussion of trade routes and whatever. Um, I think that the Jonathan V. Last critique of the original trilogy's failure to make the case against the Empire is interesting. Americans are brought up or were, were brought up to always believe that democracy is the most is the best and only right form of government. And yes. it, it starts to make you ask the question, is there a point at which, if you have a poorly designed democratic government, is some alternative preferable? And if you have a, a system of hundreds and hundreds of senators, all of equal power, all each representing a planet, pr- presumably, like the planets get the same representation no matter what their population or importance to, to the Republic is. Right. So Alderaan has the same number of senators as Tatooine and that doesn't really make sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So is there a point where Thomas Jefferson used to talk about the, the tree of Liberty being refreshed, refreshed with the blood of Patriots. Is there a point at which a democracy can become so sclerotic that it needs to go through a cycle of revolution. And I'm not arguing that the American political system is at that point or that there should be, or that violence necessarily has to be a part of that. But I like thinking about the idea of a peaceful renewal of a democratic government, whether through a new constitutional convention or a series of amendments or just you know, looking at what's not working about the system that we have and figuring out ways to fix it. There is nothing wrong with the idea of renewing your vows and updating you know, who you are in a marriage to, uh, to, to your spouse and, and who you've become over the, po- the course of several decades. People change, right? And you have to sort of look things in the eye and be honest about that. I, I love the idea personally of a constitu- constitutional convention where we can rehash some debates that might need to be had. And yesterday we had on Beltway, um, Belt- Banthas, we had Ben Dominich from The Federalist. And mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about this issue of um, making the case for democracy and and that the first order in the sequel trilogy, that it was really promising and interesting that you would have a sort of insurgent um, group of people who want to renew the promise of the empire and the idea of order. Because it's not just assumed that democracy and that the republic was a, ever a good thing or that it is worth preserving. It sort of led the galaxy into first gridlock and then total chaos in the Clone Wars. And that was the result of malpractice by the Republic. And we have to know why we believe in democracy, not just sort of dogmatically follow it wherever it may go. That's in, in many ways, I think what led the Jedi astray was that they were just invested in the Republic and didn't necessarily care or have any stake in what the Republic was 
was like. They just defended it no matter what, even if it meant Qui-Gon going to Tatooine and completely ignoring and upholding the idea of slavery because the Republic had decided to turn a blind eye to it. You know, it's it's morally bankrupt. Yeah, there's also there's also a lot of really interesting implied arguments about, you know, if the droids are sentient, is the Republic actually worse perpetuating slavery of droids than the empire is. I mean, the empire has these small, not very self, not very self-conscious droids, whereas the Republic has these sentient ones, yet they treat them very oppressively. There's also a, a implied racist element in the fact that the Republic forces or the, the rebellion forces are uh, an amalgam of different species from different planets. Whereas all of the, um, all of the Imperial officers and presumably the troops are humans for lack of a better term for you know humans in the star wars universe yeah and so it, it sort of implies they're oppressing every planet that has a that is peopled by a race other than human but we don't really get into the an explanation for that yeah and you know i think that is kind of to the jonathan last argument because his his essay has really impacted the way that political star wars fans talk about and think about the star wars franchise and and the point has i think really been taken wrong by many of his critics and many critics of this idea, which is, you know, that like even, even Dominic, who has kind of talked about this, has been called like a, a quasi-fascist for even talking about the empire right. Right. In, a, in a possibly open way. But it, it is to say that you can't just assume that the, the system of democracy that you have is actually working for good. You have to be able to, you know, run it by a stink test and actually say like, hey, this is passing what the people want. Um, the tricky thing about autocracy and, and, you know, totalitarian regimes is that most people want a certain level of dictatorial uh, control of their life. They want people to be telling them what to do, how they're going to be safe, how they're going to be secure. But you have to know what you're trading off. And and Star Wars has not done, I think, a good enough job of defending what democracy is and should be about. Be maybe maybe with the exception of making an argument in the prequels about money and politics, and that's probably the only real effort that they've made. Yeah, and and to the extent that you know the. The Canto Bite sequence and the whole Merchants of Death, like recalling mm-hmm. basically the anti-war propaganda of, of the 20s and 30s. I mean, it's a really, kind of shockingly politically unsophisticated. It, it also, the comments you were making made me think about the, I think it's the Storm Before the Storm book I read last year about the century before Julius Caesar in the Roman, the decline of the Roman Republic. And, you know, we think of the change from transition from Republic to Empire as as a loss as a as a um, as a tragedy, but if you read this history of that century leading up to that transition, I mean, democratic norms were being shredded; they weren't being repaired, and the result was a growing instability that put at threat people's economic security and and physical safety. And so, it wasn't that we lost. The Great Republic of uh, of Marcus Aurelius, and, or excuse me, I'm reversing the history there. It's not like we lost the great classic effective republic and got an empire. We they replace they chose to replace the insecurity and turmoil of a failing democratic system with a dictator. Hmm. 
Michael Steele. We always like to run uh, down the show on one final note, which is what are you excited about in the future of Star Wars? We got a lot of things coming up around the corner um, that are, are kind of shrouded in mystery at this point. They've just canonized the Old Republic in an era that they're now calling the High Republic era, and they're mm-hmm. going to be putting out a, a series of books. There is a, a blank slate now for films and uh, trilogies and stories to be told on screen for Star Wars. We have season two of The Mandalorian coming up. What has got you most excited about the future of Star Wars? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll answer that kind of little picture and big picture. Little picture, season two of The Mandalorian. I can't wait. I loved it. Um, it's it's extraordinary. And the big picture is the end of the sort of canonical, at least for now, um, Skywalker family story opens it up for opens the universe up for more experimentation like the Mandalorian and Rogue One. I mean, I think the best parts of the recent Star Wars universe, much as I like The Force Awakens, have been these places where people with a vision for recreating some of the great genres, some of the great stories uh, have been able to do that in, in the Star Wars universe. And that's that's pretty exciting. Michael Steele is a partner at Hamilton Place Strategies, and you can find him on Twitter, and you should, at Michael underscore Steele. That's Michael underscore Steele. Michael, thank you so much for coming on Beltway Banthas today. It was great talking to you. All right. And that's our conversation with Michael Steele, Republican strategist and consultant. Again, thank you to him for coming on and do follow him on Twitter as well as Beltway Banthas at Beltway Banthas. And you can shoot us an email with ideas for upcoming episodes, something I might not have thought of at BeltwayBanthas at gmail.com. And please subscribe to our newsletter, The Beltway Bantha. You can get in touch with us there and sign up in the link in our show notes or just look on Twitter and you can sign up for the newsletter there. There's lots of great readings on Star Wars and clippings from the world of Star Wars and politics as well. I've been your host, Stephen Kent. This has been Beltway Banthas. May the Force be with you always.